Now I'd like to introduce tonight's guest, Mr. Stephen Brill. Stephen Brill is the CEO of Press Plus, which has created a new business model for online journalism. He has written feature articles for The New Yorker, where he wrote about rubber rooms that housed teachers accused of incompetence. The New York Times Magazine and Time. He teaches journalism at Yale and founded the Yale Journalism Initiative and is also the founder of Court TV and The American Lawyer and Brill's Content Magazine. He is the author of Class Warfare, After, How America Confronted the September 12th Era and the Teamsters. Please give a warm welcome to Stephen Brill. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Well, as um, you heard, my background is, is not as someone who's an expert on education or education policy. My background is as a journalist, and I've always been interested in issues of, of um, accountability. Accountability of major institutions, of public servants. Uh, and accountability can mean recognizing people who are doing great work and recognizing people who are not doing great work. So um, when I was graduating from law school many years ago, I decided to, uh, to start a magazine about lawyers instead of uh, be a lawyer. And it, was about, it is about law firms and lawyers and who's doing what to whom. And then um, when I wanted um, to figure out a way for the public to see how our legal system actually works, I started uh, the cable channel, Court TV, which, which I'm sure you've all heard of. Well, I don't own that stuff anymore. I had uh, sold that and started some other uh, businesses, but about uh, two years ago, I decided I wanted to go back uh, to writing magazine articles. And I had um, never really written anything about education except as uh, uh, in, um, in working my way through law school, I'd written for New York Magazine and had written a long article about the educational testing service, the people who bring us um, the SATs and the law boards and just about every other test you take in our country um, and around the world. And it was a secretive, um, non-profit, um, very interesting um, entity uh, that uh, had a lot wrong with it. Um, and uh, nobody really knew how they had operated. Uh, but that's the only writing I'd really done on education. And then about two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, I was looking for a subject and had heard something and read something about something called uh, the rubber room, which were these places, um, these rooms, uh, te uh, technically called temporary reassignment centers, where teachers in New York City, who, as I found out, were judged to be so incompetent or so abusive, or in some cases had been charged with crimes, um, that the new school administration then in New York City, which was a reform administration uh, led by Mayor Bloomberg and a chancellor by the name of Joel Klein, that the new school administration decided that they, these people couldn't even be in classrooms. So they put them in these rubber rooms. The problem was, as they explained it, they also couldn't be fired because they had such strong uh, protections guaranteeing them tenure that were written into the state law in New York and written into their union contracts. So this seemed like an interesting story, and I approached uh, the New Yorker, and I said, I'd like to do the story. They said, have at it. Um, 
And the first day I was working on the story, um, I went to one of the rubber rooms. And the first person I saw was um, someone who was about my age. And as I opened the door, there were two guards there, and they let me in, and there were two supervisors, and there were these adults all sitting around. First person I saw had his head down on the desk, not a desk, a, a card table, fast asleep. And next to his ear, where his head was on the desk, was a little alarm clock set for 3.15 in the afternoon because he wanted to make sure he woke up in time to leave because people in the rubber room were assigned the same hours uh, that they had as if they had still been in school, 8.15 to 3.15 or thereabouts. There were, there were other people who had brought beach chairs to this room, so they were lounging around in beach chairs. Other people were playing cards. And it looked like a pretty obvious story, except that it, when I interviewed these people, um, they all said they were victims of persecution, that they were whistleblowers who had complained about uh, corruption in the new school administration, or they'd been singled out because they were older teachers and under the union contract, the older you are, the more money you get. Um, and at the same time that I, I was hearing them tell me this, I found a, a transcript of a recent broadcast of uh, by uh, the NPR um, affiliate um, in New York City, WNYC, wherein they had done a story about the rubber room and quoted all these teachers as saying that they were being persecuted because they were whistleblowers. They quoted the administration saying, no, these are, these are terrible teachers, and they quoted them saying, no, we're, we're heroes, we've just been drummed up. And they used uh, metaphors like um, human rights violations, like being in Iran or Iraq or China. Um, so what's a reporter to do? Um, what WNYC had done was quote on the one hand, on the other hand. Now, I am um, not a great believer in uh, journalism that is really just uh, stenography, where you just take down what one person says here and what one person says here. This guy says it rained yesterday. This guy says there was a hurricane yesterday. And you just put both of the quotes in the article. And that's it. You let people decide. Well, in a lot of situations, um, it's not a matter of opinion. There are facts. Well, luckily, um, in the case of these people in the rubber room, because of the tortuous arbitration process, hearing process, that was written into the union contracts before anyone could be fired. And these teachers were in the rubber room awaiting a decision in the arbitration process, decisions that typically were taking three to five years. After which, by the way, and, and they earned you know, their salaries the whole time, they accrued their pension benefits, but after the three or five years, they were invariably put back in classrooms because the arbitrators uh, their contracts every year, their $1,400 a day contracts every year, had to be approved by the teachers' union. <laughs> so they didn't typically throw these people out. So, but the hearings are these long, long hearings. And as I, um, and as I discovered, as someone who was you know, familiar, for example, with the O.J. Simpson trial, which happened not too far from here, um, these hearings typically took longer than the O.J. Simpson trial, a capital murder case. Um, so the good thing about it is that because of another union rule, there are stenographers at the hearings. And they type 
a record of every page. And these hearings were three, four, five thousand pages. Now, if you're sort of an anal compulsive like me and you love that kind of stuff when you're trying to write something and figure out what the truth is, I got those documents and I just dove into them. For me, that was the idea of a great weekend, reading one of these hearings. So, what's the first arbitration hearing I read? The first one, buried in page 900 and something, was a fight over a chain of custody. Remember the chain of custody in the OJ case, whether who had had the glove or who had had this or who had had that? And a chain of custody fight is something that lawyers use. A lot of people think it's a technicality to sort of uh, attack the evidence. Well, here, the chain of custody had to do with the teacher's, teacher's manual. Why was that important? Well, the teacher's lawyer in this hearing, paid for by the union, um, argued that um, if she didn't actually, if you couldn't prove that she'd had her teacher's manual, how is this teacher supposed to know? This is a fifth grade teacher. How was she supposed to know that uh, she was supposed to do lesson plans, supposed to assign homework, supposed to grade papers, supposed to give out grades, supposed to put stuff up on the blackboard, supposed to put stuff up on the board? How is she supposed to know she's supposed to do all that stuff if, she, if you can't prove she had her, her teacher's manual? Um, another part of the defense, several hundred pages later, this teacher had apparently appointed the biggest kid in the fifth grade to be the enforcer. And his job was, if another kid talked out of turn or misbehaved, he was supposed to smack the kid. <laughs> well, the lawyer's defense, come on, this is obvious. You know what the lawyer's defense was. She was teaching self-governance. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. So uh, the other case I looked at fairly extensively plowing through all the arbitration papers was a case of a teacher who on the union's own website, the local union in New York's own website, they had a special section for the rubber room where they talked about these human rights violations. And in the page that featured her, um, she was depicted as a senior teacher, high school teacher, who had been singled out and sent to the rub room because of her seniority, her salary was high, and she was disgruntled because the principal wasn't any good and she'd been complaining, and they just singled her out to get rid of her. Well, what did the hearing say? The hearing said that, in fact, um, she'd been found by her high school students, passed out, dead drunk in front of their class one morning, and her water bottle, when the principal came because the kids went and got the principal, her water bottle was filled with vodka. Gets better. When I talked to her about this in the course of writing this article, she was incredulous that the union had depicted her that way on the website. Her first reaction was, what are you kidding? I was a drunk. I didn't belong in a classroom. I was a drunk. I've now been rehabilitated. I was a sick person. I was drunk. I kept getting drunk. That's why they took me out of the school. Um, so you hear, you, you, you hear that stuff, and it looks like a pretty clear case that um, there's a lot of abuse going on, and that, the, and that a union which had um, formed in the 50s and 60s, actually the 40s, 50s, and 60s, across the country for very good reasons had morphed into something quite different. The good reasons were, in the 50s and 60s, uh, teachers were 
way, way underpaid. They were mostly women. Uh, there was rampant sex discrimination, rampant abuse of teachers. For example, there were rules all across the country that um, if a teacher got pregnant, um, she had to immediately uh, notify the school and take a two-year unpaid leave of absence because you're not going to have kids see teachers being pregnant, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to do that. Um, and there were, there, were, there, there were rules, for example, in Washington, D.C., um, during the 50s for a teacher to collect her, and it was mostly her, uh, paycheck every two weeks, she had to sign a statement swearing that she had not talked about communism in her classroom over the prior two-week period. So there was a really good reason for these unions to be formed, but it became, frankly, when you looked at this picture of the rubber room, you know, sort of too much of a good thing. Uh, the protection was strangling teaching. Now, you look at that against the context of school systems across our country that are failing. Uh, we spend two or three times as much per student as any country in the world, and we rank in the middle to the bottom third in student achievement among the developed countries in the world. And the more money we spend, uh, the less that happens. Our, our, our performance levels haven't gone up, and our ranking has, I mean, our performance level has, a, has stayed sort of constant, like here, while the rest of the world has, has gone like that. So uh, it, is not, um, it is not a pretty picture. So I was, as I was finishing this article, I heard about something um, called Race to the Top. Now, Race to the Top was this program that President Obama and his Secretary of Education thought up, um, and there's a lot in the book about how this happened, thought up that as part of the stimulus package, uh, the original stimulus package in, in, in January of 2009 that was announced, um, they would, they would take $5 billion and provide aid to states for education, but they would condition the aid on the states competing to propose a reform agenda. And the principle, the core of the reform agenda was very simply that uh, you had to put it a, some notion of performance and accountability back into the school system. Why? Well, there are 3.2 million teachers in the United States. It's the largest single profession. In fact, other than retail sales clerks and cashiers, it's actually the largest occupation in the United States. 1% of the country are K-12 school teachers. However, it's also the only occupation in the United States, except maybe for you know, being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, uh, where performance absolutely doesn't count. <laughs> um, where how long you've been breathing is, in fact, what counts. So race to the top was the president's idea to, to basically say to states, we'll give money, this, this $5 billion, we'll split it among 10 or 15 states that submit the best proposals for how they're going to reward teachers based on how effective they are, how they're going to do other things, such as uh, create plans to turn around schools that are failing the most, um, how they're going to recruit better teachers, just the kinds of things that have been on the so-called education uh, reform agenda for a long time. Now, what was unusual about this was that it was a Democratic president who was doing it, because Democrats have never 
being on the so-called education reform side, principally because the largest single support group for Democrats around the country, especially in local elections, um, is uh, the teachers union. The teachers unions are now 25% of all the union membership in the United States, and they are by far an, uh, the largest contributors to political campaigns of any group, any corporation, any interest group, by far the largest single group of contributors, and they contribute almost all their money and all their time to the Democratic Party. The result is the Democrats pretty much have stayed quite loyal to them, except there was this guy who was a state senator in Illinois who didn't get the memo and had been talking about education reform actually as a state senator um, in Illinois, and he is one of a new breed of Democrats. Uh, your mayor here in Los Angeles has recently become um, another one who uh, saw, who see education reform and making schools effective, making our public schools effective and accountable as the new civil rights issue of our generation. Um, so that's what Race to the Top is about. So I decided to do another magazine article, this time for the New York Times Magazine, about Race to the Top. And as I, because what was interesting was, were states like New York, which desperately needed money, every state has a budget gap. California desperately needed the money that the Obama administration was dangling in front of them. Would they need it so desperately that they'd actually do reforms that uh, the union desperately wanted them not to do? So that was an interesting article. And as I was writing it, what I figured out, what I found out was uh, this phenomenon that had been going on all around us, all of us, and none of us really knew too much about it, which was that this whole generation of people in the, over the last 10 or 15 years had been sort of growing up and festering in communities all over the country of education reformers who were relatively young. A lot of them were Democrats. They were sort of Ivy Leaguers. Um, and what had really um, uh, uh, motivated them was these were people who had been recruited into something uh, called uh, the Teach for America program. Um, it, and that is a program that started in 1989. And it was meant to recruit people off of, you know, our best college campuses for two years of teaching in an underprivileged neighborhood. Um, and there are all kinds of questions about how effective, you know, someone walking out of Berkeley or Yale is, you know, going into a you know, into a ghetto school with, you know, four or five weeks of training, though they actually are mostly pretty effective now. But what there isn't a question about is that these people, the exposure that they got doing that for two years, turned a lot of them into influential education reformers. Um, for example, um, the, um, uh, there was a woman who graduated from Cornell in 1992. She gets plucked into an elementary school as a math teacher in Baltimore, and she immediately fails because she didn't have the training. And you know, here's someone who succeeded in her, everything she'd done in her life. She'd been a success. And her first two, three months at the school, she's just a failure. She can't reach these kids because you know why? It's really, really hard. Um, but because she had never failed before, she just didn't assume that she was supposed to fail. And that's the, one of the real problems with our system the way it is, is everybody just assumes that because these kids are poor, or they're black, or they come from broken homes, 
that they're going to fail. And she didn't believe that. She didn't believe, she thought she was so good and so smart and so accomplished that she could make any kid succeed. So she thought up all these math games with cutouts and shapes and things she would draw on paper and, and textiles that she would create to create all these games. And the kids started succeeding. And then she had um, another epiphany, which is after she'd been there a year or two and she was actually teaching these kids math and they were succeeding, she realized that they were going to go back after they left her class in the fifth grade into the sixth grade where they were going to be in the same pit where everybody else assumed that they were going to fail and they would fail. So she decides, I'm going to work on the macro problem. I'm going to work on the system. Well, that woman uh, was uh, Michelle Ree, who went on to the Kennedy School, uh, started something called the New Teacher Project, and then became, as many of you know, uh, the chancellor of uh, the DC school system. There was a guy in Houston, same story, gets out of Yale, gets put into a Houston school for Teach for America, fails miserably the first three or four months, can't believe he's failing, how could he possibly fail? Um, comes up with a, another gimmick, which are jingles and rhymes and music, and he has this partner who is, who's with him from Teach for America in the same school, um, and they start to succeed, but they are, they're really bummed out because their kids are just going to go back into the pit and fail once they leave their classes, and they start a program called KIPP, which is now a network of really successful charter schools. I think there are 99 of them all across the country. So in writing this Times Magazine article, I saw this network had sprung up and all these charter schools had sprung up. And to me, it was fascinating. And I started to go to the charter schools. And one night, um, and, and what I see is there's this real pitch battle going on between the union forces and the reform forces. And one night, I go to a um, hearing um, in Harlem, in Manhattan, which is where I live, um, in Manhattan. And um, there's a hearing in a school auditorium over something called relocation. And what relocation is, is the, it's a process by which um, the chancellor, Joel Klein, in New York, who had been an antitrust lawyer, and therefore understood the value of markets and competition, he would designate empty space in a public school building and allow a charter school to set up shop there. So there was a hearing, and the unions, of course, bitterly resisted this. I mean, what could be worse than having, you know, you know, a science experiment of conventional public school here with teacher's union contract, charter school here, same kids, same community. Let's see if anything different happens in terms of results. So they bitterly contest these things. And I, I mean, I go into this, this school auditorium, and the union has bust in actually hard hats uh, from Queens, which is where I grew up. Um, and they're sitting in the front, and they're jeering at all the charter school people, and in the back are these hundreds and hundreds of parents in orange t-shirts, which was the color of that charter school, with their kids on their laps. And there's a guy there I talked to who's a janitor um, on Wall Street with his kid on his lap. And he says, I'm a member of a union, but this is outrageous. Don't they understand? My kid can read. And he's in the first grade. He can read. I have a daughter, I think he said, is on the other side of the building in the third grade, and she can't read. Um, and I talked to the, the first grader, and he says, um, he says to me, he says, um, 
yeah, I love this school. And he holds up a sign. He's got a big sign he's, he's held up. And the sign says, I can read. Then in parentheses under the I can read, it says, I can even read this, meaning the sign. <laughs> parentheses under that, it says, in fact, I wrote this. <laughs> First grade. Pretty good. Um, so I go to this, and these people are screaming and yelling at each other. And my wife's with me, and we leave this hearing. We take what can't be a eight-minute cab ride down to the east side of Manhattan where we're meeting some friends for dinner. And um, we get there and we tell these friends of ours what we'd just seen. And they looked at us like we were Martians. I mean, you know, what are you talking about? Relocation, fighting over schools? The reason is that on the east side of Manhattan, the east side of Central Park in Manhattan, and the west side of Central Park in Manhattan, parents have school choice. They can move to the suburbs, they can go to private schools, or they can get stuck with the public school. <laughs> On the north side of Central Park, there hadn't been school choice. And now there is. And to me, that is a major breakthrough that has caused a continued political upheaval that is what all this fight about education is about. Now, let me take you back to that, uh, uh, that school I was talking about with the relocation hearing. Um, their building, where they have the public school on one side, the charter school on the other side, is 118th Street in Harlem. And I'm there one morning, and um, I'm watching a teacher um, teach a writing class, a class on writing essays, to a bunch of uh, fifth graders. And they're sitting on the floor listening to her, and she's describing, she's outlining a method of doing a topic sentence and then doing a map for the whole rest of your little essay. And I'm writing down in my reporter's notebook, this is you know, what she's doing. And then I find myself finding another sheet, um, um, another sheet of paper that I can put in my pocket where I'm writing the same thing down. Now, why was I doing that? Because I thought to myself, you know, that's a really cool way to do this. Um, I should do this with my <laughs> Yale class. I teach a class at Yale College, mostly for juniors and seniors um, in journalism. And I said, what she's doing, I ought to be telling my kids about that. Now, now think about that. Fifth graders in the middle of Harlem, and she has this, the expectations, and their realistic expectations, it turns out, that she can teach them something that I want to glom onto and teach these college kids. That's pretty good. After a while I leave, I walk not 20 feet through a fire door to the other side of the building. I'm at the public school side, and the first class I happen onto is a teacher sitting back, leaning back, screaming at his kids, also fifth graders, English. How many days in a week? How many days in a week? Kids are just talking to each other. They ignore him. A couple of them are wrestling on the floor. He screams it again, screams it again. Then he says, all right, let's go on to something else. Now, I have to tell you, the only reaction I think any of us in this room would have if you saw those two scenes and just put them together with each other in time and in space just the way they actually were is you just want to figure out, can I lift up two of those kids or three of them? How many can I get in my arms and carry them to the other side of the wall, to the other side of the building? Well, that is what a lot of these parents now know. You know, it's like East Berlin and West Berlin. I mean, they know that their kids' lives can be reclaimed 
and propelled forward if they have a good education. Because what charter schools really do, the ones that work, and there are a lot of them that don't work, but the ones that work um, prove what should be obvious, which is that those kids don't have to fail. Poverty is a terrible obstacle. Broken homes are a terrible obstacle. Obviously, my kids um, had a lot more going for them because they had you know, two college-educated parents who would read to them at night. But those obstacles aside, you can, if you do it maybe eight hours a day instead of six hours a day, and maybe you know, ten and a half months a year instead of nine months a year, and, and with you know, much more concentration, you can do it. So I went downstairs after I watched the guy with the Hemi days in the week, and I went to see the teacher there, and the, uh, the principal. Now, the principal had been installed by the new administration. She'd been trained at a new leadership academy, and she was a reform principal who wanted to reform. And I told her the story. She knew exactly who the teacher was, knew she couldn't really do anything about him. Um, and she said to me, she said, you give me the right to hire my own teachers the way they have on the other side of that building, and you give me the right to have an eight-hour school day the way they have on the other side of that building, and I'll have a hundred little Einsteins running around here too. She's right. So that, to me, was what the issue is about, and race to the top was this federal notion that we can encourage that. Well, in Washington, things don't always work out as they're supposed to, so what we know about race to the top is that very good intentions, but because when you give out a federal grant, you have to do it you know, with, a, with, with so much bureaucracy, including the fact that the people who decide which of these states won the money couldn't have any conflict of interest or perceived conflict of interest, which I don't want to bore you with the details, but when you went through the 19 single-space pages of rules about what a conflict of interest was, it basically boiled down to they weren't allowed to know anything. I mean, they can't have had any experience in the stuff they were supposed to be judging. So a lot of states, of, of, the, of the 12 states that won the money, um, a lot of them didn't deserve to win. A lot of states, such as um, uh, Colorado and uh, Louisiana in particular, that very much deserved to win, didn't win. California, in fact, scored higher than uh, Louisiana, and California's application was a joke. But the people who were vetting the application almost didn't get the joke. Um, so where does that you know, leave us today? I mean, you, you, you've heard me sort of dump on the union, dump on the union, dump on the union. Um, but it's actually not all that simple. Um, I don't think the solution's going to come you know, from federal programs, because I think while the Obama administration could prime the pump with this, the real solution is going to be, you know, is going to come from local politics. It's going to be parents like those parents in Harlem, parents as in in California who are have the advent now of uh, the trigger law, um, uh, parents who maybe more newspapers will do what the Los Angeles Times did and have the guts to publish, um, you know, ratings of teachers. I mean, why shouldn't a parent be entitled to know if her if her kid's teacher has the lowest rating or highest rating in the building. I mean, that's pretty basic consumer information. I think that the, that the revolution's gonna bubble up from uh, the grassroots because of what the Obama administration did to prime the pump, what this network of TFA alums have done, 
what the good charter schools have done to demonstrate that you can teach kids, but it's a lot more complicated even than that. Um, it really is. Um, I was, um, toward the end of my reporting on the book, two things happened that reminded me how much more complicated it is. Um, one is I was up um, at one of the best of the KIPP charter networks schools uh, with this guy, Dave Levin, who's a founder, who was uh, uh, the founder. And I'm sitting there with him, and I said, boy, you must feel really good, really proud. You've got um, now 100 schools. You've got all these kids that you're really moving toward college. I mean, it's a really successful operation. You've got Waiting for Superman. You've got Race to the Top. Everybody now, there's a national conversation going on about this. All is good, right? And he says, no, not all is good. In fact, I'm, I'm really sort of unhappy because I know we just keep failing every day. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, here, I'll show you. So he grabs a little notebook. We go to a classroom, um, and he stands in back of the classroom with me. It looks like any other KIPP classroom I'd ever seen, a, a completely riveting teacher in the front of the room, perfectly attentive little kids in the back of the room. And he's, uh, he scribbles some notes. We walk out of the room 10 minutes later, and he says, oh, we made five, that teacher made five really terrible mistakes. Did you see that she turned her back when she went to write on the blackboard? Did you see that, that two of the kids, uh, when you looked at the homework log, hadn't done all their homework for today? Did you see that, and he names these other little trivial things. And I said, that's, you know, Dave, I said, that's, you know, that's chicken shit. What are you talking about here? He said, no, that stuff adds up. He says, this is unglamorous drudgery, day-to-day -day work. All of those things are what add up. There's no silver bullets here. There's no magic. It's attention. It's excruciating attention to detail. It's lesson planning that is real lesson planning. It's things like eye contact. It's things like after you've done a lesson, you go over it with a colleague to see how it worked out and how you can fix it. That's what this is all about. And even we, with these best and brightest teachers who kill themselves for eight, ten hours a day, um, even we can't do it well. And then he says, now imagine what happens with 3.2 million teachers. Remember 3.2 million teachers? He said, you know, the one thing you don't understand is that if you tore up every union contract in the country, it would only be permission to start, to start to get teachers to be better. Yes, you need to make them responsible for their performance, but you need to give them the tools, you need to recruit them, you need to, you need to pay them more, not necessarily pay more in taxpayer money, but if you took money from you know, the pensions and put it towards starting salaries and did things like not pay teachers to go to their union conventions and a whole variety of other things, you could actually take, pay teachers much, much more without spending more taxpayer dollars. He said, but that's the thing you have to do. So then one other thing happened. Right after that conversation, almost as if you know, this avalanche was falling on me with all my notions that you know, if we just fix the union contract, the world is good. Um, remember the teacher I described who, who was doing the essay lessons? Um, I had basically followed her around for a year and a half, almost two years. Um, 28, 29 years old, um, had gone to uh, UCLA, um, and she had told me at the beginning that she had worked her way through UCLA by being a personal trainer. She's really athletic. And 
as we started talking during the year, she would say things like, you know, I don't even get to go to the gym anymore. I mean, she just was lived to go to the gym. I don't even get to go to the gym anymore. Or my husband, she had just been married. You know, my husband's sort of angry that um, I'm either at work or I'm just thinking about work or I'm taking cell phone calls at night from parents and I'm losing weight. I'm just, uh, you know, I just feel terrible. Well, the, toward the end of the book, she quit. Hmm. She quit. So those two things... What are the, you know? What do those two things tell me? What they tell me is that uh, charter schools are great. That teacher is great, but they're really sort of like emergency room doctors, which is to say they save thousands, tens of thousands of lives every year, and God knows you ought to celebrate that, and you ought to do everything you can to encourage them and try to get more of them. Um, but they're not really a substitute for fixing the healthcare system. What we really have to focus on is making the average teacher, not the extraordinary best and brightest superstar from UCLA who's willing to work nine hours a day until she drops, because actually she will drop, but we have to focus on fixing the rules and fixing the contract and encouraging and training this large swath of people who are extraordinary because they want to be teachers. They're obviously intelligent, but they're not the superstars because you can't populate 95,000 K-12 to schools with all superstars. And we have to climb back in this country as a matter of national security, economic, you know, economic security, and civil rights. We have to climb back from the absolute disaster that our public schools are to get them where average teaching in the United States means something different than it means today. Average today means the teacher is in a culture of failure where it's, it's civil service protection and it's not performance. Average has to mean something else. And to me, that's the only way we're really ever going to put the American dream back into American schools. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Joel Hahn. I taught for 30 years and I was a chapter chair of the union for nine. Um, You've attacked, uh, yeah, there are some bum teachers, there's no doubt about it, as there are bum administrators and bum parents and others. But, I mean, these attacks are unreal. Michelle Ree uh, wanted to dump tenure. I was a union activist. She would have fired me immediately, no protection for myself. Uh, are you seriously saying that teachers should, money should be taken from the pensions of teachers and put into their salaries? Is that what, what your suggestion what I'm is? I, I, I'm sorry, I'll stop because I, I don't even know where to stop to tell you the truth. But I mean, well, this, I thought this would be a thinly veiled attack on teachers and unions. On unions, there's nothing thin about it. Certainly not an attack on teachers. Um, it is an attack, for example, on a pension system that has um, that basically works only for the senior teachers, not for the junior teachers. Um, to give you an example, the New York Times did a profile of a teacher in Wisconsin during the controversy over over the governor's, I thought, you know, ill, just wrong, wrong-headed measures to, to kill the union, not to, not to change the union. And uh, this teacher, who was a science teacher, said that she felt downtrodden and beaten down. She was only making $34,000 a year. And I went through her contract, um, and I do this in the book, and explain how it's her union contract that makes her feel downtrodden, not anything else. For example, she's a science teacher. Your union 
is against paying science teachers more than other teachers, even though our nation, as a matter of national security, needs them. Um, she's against last in, first out, which is the utterly stupid thing that no one can defend of if you have layoffs, the only way you decide layoffs is, is in a quality blind way where you just fire the junior teachers. The argument had been, well, if you could lay off teachers any other way, the district would single out the senior teachers and fire them because they get paid the most. Apart from the fact that that identifies the problem of why should you pay teachers more just because they've been breathing longer, it's also a total anachronism. Since 1967, you can't do that because there's something called the Federal Age Discrimination Act. And it's easy to catch people who try to do that. So if LIFA was eliminated, that teacher in Madison, Wisconsin uh, would have been better off. Um, she, like most members of the union, has never voted in a union election. Um, yet uh, the contract says that teachers in Madison are paid to go to their regional and state union conventions. I don't think that helps the kids very much. Um, the contract says that they get 12 sick days and personal days off in a 32-week school year. Um, that's a pretty good deal. That's a day off every two and a half weeks. I don't think that helps the kids very much. If you took that stuff away, I, oh, what you could do, and I demonstrated in the book, is instead of paying that teacher $34,000 a year, you could pay her a salary, a starting salary of $65,000 a year, pay top teachers $165,000 a year, and it wouldn't cost the taxpayers a penny more. The other thing that, uh, that would be part of that is getting rid of the absolutely phony obsession with you know, class size limits. Now, class size matters, but not at the margins. Obviously, there's a difference if a class is 20 people versus 40. But 20 versus 22 or 24 versus 26, it never matters. But teachers try to write that into law. Why? Because the more teachers you have to hire, the more dues the union gets. That, that's not good for teachers. Teachers don't like that. The union likes that. I'm the happiest teacher of alive. I retired. Anyway, what I want to ask you is a big discussion in Los Angeles, I'm sure you're familiar with, about merit pay mm -hmm. and about pay for performance. What do you yeah. believe about that? I don't understand why the only workplace in the country, um, which everybody, especially teachers, agrees is a pretty important workplace, the only workplace in the country where we don't say that, that performance should count for something is the schoolroom. We can all agree that doing it just on the basis of how much a kid progresses in test scores, that, could, that can be unfair. We could all agree that if you do it based on principal observations, that could be unfair. But, and you know what? Every other workplace, this building, the people who work in this building, <clears throat> some of them might get promoted or fired or hired in an unfair way. That doesn't mean you just don't try to do it. The only place where you just throw up your hands and say, well, it might be unfair. Um, therefore, we're not even going to try. The, the, the history of public education in this country since the 1970s has been the story of the bureaucracies and the unions making deals that they both liked and forgetting about the kids. The kids are the priority. You can't, no one can tell me that paying teachers to go to a union convention is what's good for the kids or having a rule in a contract that says a principal might, may not comment on the form of a teacher's lesson plan. No one can tell me that's good for the kids. That, that is not a rule that was written for the children. 
and I celebrate all random efforts to make schools and teachers better. But I've wondered for a long time why we don't um, chuck the whole old system and move to a, new, to a system that turns out imaginative, uh, effective graduates like Sergey Brin and, La and Larry Page and just go Montessori and how that would affect uh, how that would affect our, our children and the and the teachers unions there are lots of models like that that work again the issue is scale and the issue is choice um, you know let me give you another example there, there are rules written into law it's not even the union contract that wouldn't allow distance learning. So that if you have a genius you know, math teacher for AP high school, but you're in a rural school in California where you don't have that teacher, you don't, it doesn't count. You don't get the, the state aid in that school district for that kid sitting in that classroom. You only get the aid if the kid is sitting in a classroom with a physical teacher. Well, who wrote that rule? How does that make any sense? There are so many models, like you know, the one you're describing, that would make sense, but the orientation, frankly, has to be toward the kids. It's so not... Does that mean we're going to have... Does that mean we're going to have a sort of iTunes U, and we're going to have no, 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 these no, no, things online? No, 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 I was not... No, I am not a big proponent of... of, of I'm, I'm a proponent of that as, a, as an exception in special cases, but I was just citing it as another rule. Right. Um, there are all kinds of rules and all kinds of requirements that don't allow for those models. For example, you will hear, I'm sure someone will get up and say here, well, what about the parents? Well, okay, what about the parents? Well, if you want parents to be involved in a child's education, why would you have union rules that say that the teachers don't have to an you know, answer a parent's uh, phone call except you know, between two or three in the afternoon when the teacher's not at the phone and the parent you know, might be driving a bus. Why wouldn't you say, well, once, you know, for an hour every night, you should, take, um, you, should, you, know, you should be able to take phone calls from parents? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Part of this idea of the unsustainability of you know, a KIPP teacher going through this, doing you know, 80 hours a week and being on her cell phone at night and you know, most of the KIPP schools turning over their teachers every two to four years, kind of, you well, know. Well, that's just not true. Okay, well then, a high percentage of them in San Francisco did, you know, and they did a study. So I'm supposed to ask no, a question, was, but I'm trying to get that's to. That's just not true. Okay, so let me just get to my, my point I'm trying to make, is that I think teaching is a profession, and it takes five years plus for teachers, you know, to be able to get good for anybody in a profession, for an organizer to get good, for a journalist to get good. You can't get to it right away. So my question is, how do we rethink how we value the profession of teaching and make sure that people who have the hearts, who want to actually continue to work with parents and with students in a way that's nurturing and that grows and develops stay in the schools in a way that develops themselves well, and that's that they grow. A, that is in large part what the book is about. How do you develop that kind of a, you know, that kind of a sustainable system? But it's pretty clear what it's not about. Um, if I said to a group of you know, high-achieving people about to graduate from college, I got a great deal for you. For the next 20 years, uh, you can go do this and every piece of recognition you get, whether it's your salary or your position in, in the workplace, all the recognition you get is going to be based entirely on how long you keep breathing. Nothing else. 
which best, which high achievers do you know who want to do that? Um, what you want to get to to get people to stay more than the reason teachers leave, you know, so early is they look up and they say, well, it's my third or fourth year. This is excruciatingly hard, and it is. Um, and I'm really, you know, and I'm just, uh, you know, and I'm really good at it. But it doesn't matter if I'm good at it because, um, you know, I'm in the fourth grade. I know I'm a good fourth grade teacher, and I can tell you who the worst third grade teacher is in my school and the best. When you ask the question about, you know, how do you evaluate people, every fourth grade teacher in America could tell you who the best and worst teacher is in their third grade because they get the results. This is not rocket science. But what they know is they're not going to be recognized for being the best fourth grade teacher. So the first thing you have to do is create a culture of performance Instead of, instead of a culture of civil service protection. You have to pay more. You certainly, I mean, this is, we haven't talked about this, you have to totally overthrow and revamp the education schools in this country, which are basically cash cows for universities that now attract the lowest quartile of college graduates and pump them through and charge them high tuitions and don't prepare them to be in classrooms. I mean, that's like the ongoing scandal of the education schools, even the so-called good ones. Speaking of accountability, I have a hard time squaring the president's and the secretary's support of this Race to the Top program with the White House non-support of the opportunity scholarships for students in Washington, poor students in Washington, D.C., so that they could attend the same school as President Obama's Oh, daughters. I agree with you completely. Uh, you're I think you're absolutely right, and I say so in the book. Um, also, as long as you mention it, um, I said that in, in the president's first stimulus package, he had this performance-conditioned um, aid to school systems. In the new proposal to hire all these teachers, um, there are no conditions. It's just that's gone out the window. He's gone back to his Democratic Party base, and reformers are just you know, really disillusioned by it. Um, because, it, first of all, it's not clear who the, who, if he got the money, which he's not going to get, it's not clear who those teachers are who'd be hired, and um, there are no conditions as there were with the race to the top money. And the, the opportunity of the federal government is to put conditions on money so that you get performance. Do you think that possibly the types of parents who care enough to enroll their kids in a charter and cross their fingers and hope they win the lottery and care enough to want to pull their kids out of school and help like, see them succeed in these schools might also be the types of parents that stay up at night reading to their kids and helping them with their homework. And, well, uh, I would have, and I would have thought that was a factor, but for the fact uh, 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 that Tom Kane of the Harvard Education School, who is, is considered the the preeminent scholar in, in these issues of, uh, um, did a study in Massachusetts, um, which the deniers, uh, the anti-education reform people always forget to mention, um, where he did exactly, he tested that hypothesis. He took a cohort of parents and kids who had applied to the lottery for charter schools in and around Boston and followed those who got in and those who didn't get in. And sure enough, four, five, six years later, the ones who didn't get in and were in the conventional schools were doing much worse than the ones who did get in 
and were in the charter schools. So in effect, he controlled for the parent motivation factor. I was a former administrator and a former teacher, and I was a union member when I was a teacher and a union member when I was an administrator. And some of the things you've said, and you know, watching Waiting for Superman and then listening to you about charter schools, both have shown a very, very narrow picture of education, especially for public schools. I don't know, maybe I was lucky, but I was principal of six different schools, and the teachers I worked with put in many, many hours and worked their tails off. And that's not saying that I didn't have those that didn't, and I didn't have those that I knew didn't belong there. But what affected me more than the unions, because I could work with teachers and we could stretch things in the contract that worked for kids, were the regulations that I got that I had to work around that I got from the federal government, the state government, and basically those two. Because what was good for kids, such as teachers working together to work on lesson plans that they would implement to come back, that they would evaluate and take a look at student data to see if it worked, that I had to fudge and lie in order to, to get that going in my school. And that's where I really had problems and uh, obstacles. There is a lot of that in the book, the, the problems that people have with school bureaucracies and with rules. Um, the second is, I just want to come back to that picture of those, those two classrooms in that building in Harlem. And uh, I think that addresses your question too, which is, you see those two classrooms. You see the results. By the way, the, the kids in that charter school in Harlem, which is the Harlem Success Academy School, they are performing on a whole variety of, of tests, a whole variety of grades, equivalent to the children in Scarsdale, which is one of the wealthiest suburbs in New York. The kids on uh, the public school side are performing the way the stereotype would have you assume that those kids in Harlem are going to perform. Um, but you just, if you're, you're me and you just sort of drop down from the sky and you haven't been involved, I mean, I had no ax to grind in this stuff, I'm, you know, on one side or the other, but you just look at the reality of that. And you, there isn't a parent involved on either side of that building who doesn't understand the reality of that and doesn't care what that Harvard study says about motivation and doesn't care about, they just look at that and say, I want my kid on that side of the building. That's a better school. Why are we debating that? You, it's not, are there terrible charter schools? Yes, there are. Are 20% of the charter schools in the country terrible, or 40%, or 38%, or 46%? Who knows? There are a lot of really terrible charter schools, typically in states that don't manage the chartering process very well and don't hold the charters accountable either. But the, the, the only, the real point of charter schools is that they just prove that this is possible, and there are public schools all across the country, some of which you probably ran, that proved the same thing. And, and you mentioned that you used to figure out ways to get around the rules to make that happen. What I'm saying is we have a national security crisis in this country with our next generation. Why do we have rules that you have to get around? Why are we having that debate? Why don't we just say the only thing we care about are these kids? Thank you for having me, everybody. <laughs>